There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant with 27 years of service. And with me tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How you feeling? All right. You know, pretty good. Pretty good. good. I'm ready to go tonight. Folks, we're going to try to cover three uh, separate stories tonight. And of course, we've been uh, covering the Dylan Rounds missing person case. And I'll be frank right out of the gate. Um, uh, his mom, uh, Candace Cooley, was supposed to come on tonight. She called me a couple of hours ago and said that she was just uh, mentally and physically exhausted <clears throat> from all the media that she's been doing. So I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to play some of the media that she did. She went on uh, News Nation last night with Brian Enton, and she uh, got us up to date on where the case is right now. Uh, we'll talk about it. We'll um, analyze it, and we'll see where they're going right now. But uh, as I said, she um, she's a great lady, and uh, she's a bit she's a bit um, exhausted right now from all the. You get understand just, physically and mentally exhausted, of course. It sounds like she hasn't stopped for the three weeks that her son is missing. So very no, she hasn't. And and besides that, it's all the emotion involved. So sure. let me play a little bit of Brian Enton. Her appearance. This was last night. On Brian Enton. Marks four weeks since anybody's laid eyes on Dylan Rounds. Dylan is a 19-year-old farmer who is living and working by himself on a plot of land he bought with the help of his grandfather on the Utah-Nevada border. You see him there. His family back in Idaho says farming is in Dylan's blood, and his very first crop is sitting in the field as we speak right now. Where Dylan is, is a total mystery. His parents reported him missing May 30th, four days after he was last seen at the Saddle Sore Bar in Nevada. Within an hour, search teams found Dylan's boots about 100 yards away from his pickup truck in the opposite direction of the camper where he was living. There was a blood, uh, a spot of blood on the boots and the truck uh, strangely uh, appeared to have been washed. Nobody wants to find Dylan more than his mother, Candace Cooley. Uh, she joins me live now tonight. Candace, thank you so much for, for coming on. First of all, tell me about Dylan. Uh, tell me uh, about his love of farming and how he ended up on this farm by himself. So Dylan, since he was a little kid, would follow his father, Justin, and his grandpa around on the family farm. That's all he ever, ever wanted to do. Um, unfortunately, in the area that we live, uh, it's too expensive for a young man like him to get started. Um, it's just the ground's astronomical. So somebody that he knew turned him onto this ground down in Lucin, Utah. It has been farmed before. There's water rights. Um, it just needed, the ground needed to be broke out again, the brush torn out. So for two years, that's what he's been doing is prepping this land to farm it again. And uh, the price difference is unreal. So it was his dream. He could afford... Uh, him and his grandfather owned 640 acres, and he his dream was he was going to develop 2,000 acres in the valley and have his own little place that nobody was ever going to want to move houses into. 
He was never going to get beat out by the competition because nobody wanted to go out and farm in the middle of the desert. But he did because he so, knew. So he was dream. living his dream, it sounds like, Candace. Yeah, it was his dream. He, he finally was able to get this farm. Um, and then he vanishes. Did, did he have any enemies? I mean, when when you realized that he, he, he wasn't answering the phone anymore, I mean, what first popped into your head? Honestly, um, a farm accident. Honestly, something happened to him. He's laying out there in the desert and he's hurt and we got to go find him and get him to a hospital. Um, myself, his father, his grandparents, all of us, that's what we all thought that we're going to find him out there in the desert with a broke leg or a snake bite. Um, something like that was what our thoughts were. And we're told that his boots were found 100 yards from his truck and that his truck was was oddly washed. What do you think that means? So, so let me clarify that. So it was Dylan's grain truck, not his pickup truck. So in that picture, his okay. grain truck was actually, it was inside that shed and the boots were back behind it where that dirt mound is. His camper is five and a half miles in the other direction where his pivot and his irrigation pond and all of his other stuff is. So his pickup truck was what was washed, not the grain truck. And, but what do you think it means that, that the boots were found 100 feet from the truck? I mean, I, I don't know much about farming. Does that indicate no. something or is that just totally uh, strange or? It's bizarre because Dylan was such a particular kid about his boots from the time he was little. I'm talking from the time this kid was three, four years old. For years, I'd have to go onto Amazon and find the exact same pair of boots when he grew out of one. And he didn't have two pairs of boots. And he didn't wear tennis shoes. And he didn't wear flip-flops. He had a pair of boots that he wore. And so we knew immediately when we'd seen the boots, something is wrong. Those are Dylan's boots. They're Dylan's size. They're what he wears. He's got a sidestep where he kind of wears out the side of his one boot. Uh, he doesn't put his pants over him a lot. So the tops of him are shrugged down. I mean, they were Dylan's boots. So are there any leads, Candace? Are, are police giving you any information? And well, is there a, a person of interest? Has there been any progress? Um, so since the FBI got involved the week of the 14th, um, there's been a lot of progress that we can't release. Nothing Nothing that's giving us a direction, but stuff is finally starting to happen. From the time Dylan's boots were found, from the time his key fob was missing, his pickup we noticed was washed, nothing was done to treat this as anything more than a kid walked out into the desert without his boots. I, I mean, literally nothing. There was no fingerprinting. There was no processing of any scenes, his camper, his pickup, his boots, his grain truck, nothing. Nothing was done. Yeah, you mentioned that. I mean, the only way that I, the only reason I knew about this is because so many people on Twitter said, you've got to do this story. It's not getting enough yeah. attention. Uh, do you well, think law enforcement dropped the ball in the beginning? Absolutely, 100%. And no doubt, and I will not go back on that. And any of our family members and close friends who have been close in the case will support us right along with that. When Box Elder County came out, they came out Monday, May 30th, um, got there approximately between four and five. I really wasn't keeping good records at that time. None of us were. They left after dark and they did a good job. Don't get me wrong, especially volunteers. They did a good job. But by the next day, when they come out and the sheriffs and everybody came back out, it was around two, three in the afternoon. They called it. They literally left our family out in the desert to figure oh out what my happened. Gosh. They called it and left. We did not have another search and rescue team out there until Friday which would have been the third, and that was Weber County. And then from there, they left us again. 
Saturday, June 4th, we had about 250 people out there from the public and close friends and family helping us. We had no guidance from Box Elder. We had no help. We had one person from the sheriff's office out there for about an hour and a half, and he left. They left us. Yeah, I mean, that's so disturbing. That's so disturbing to hear, Candace. I'm glad the FBI is involved now. Um, I'm glad that we're able to get this out there. You've got my cell phone number. If there's anything we can do to help uh, in the future, we'll we'll try to keep it it in the headlines. Candace Cooley, thank you for joining us tonight. I hope Dylan is fine soon. Thank you for watching. Go to News. So there you have it. You know, folks, one of the things uh, I think you got to be careful when you're the complainant in a case uh, to really in public bash the police because they're the ones that are investigating this. They're the ones you're going to absolutely rely on to help solve this case. And I think you got to be choose your words carefully. And right now it, it is a good thing that the FBI is involved. We'll get some organization. We'll get some, uh, we'll get some of the toys that the FBI brings to these cases. And, um, Phil, I want you just to tell maybe the audience about how a large investigation like this will go. Well, how do we proceed? How do we go along? Well, right off the bat, Billy, uh, I don't know if there was uh, that it was a small town police office, uh, police department, and they didn't have the manpower, the resources to conduct proper investigation. But uh, the minute that uh, the suspicion was thrown into the mix, not a missing person, now a suspicious missing person, when you find his boots thrown behind that mound of dirt that's, uh, you know, 100 yards away, and it's it, if you look at the positioning of it, it appears that, that were, they were purposely thrown uh, back there and not to be found. So they weren't left in plain sight. Again, the pickup truck being washed, uh, that was very suspicious. Um, so uh, again, if there was a, a major investigation where we think it's suspicious, we would enlist, uh, help from a lot of different detectives. We'd have the crime scene unit respond and do a crime scene at the location where the boots were found, as well as the, uh, the vehicle that may have been washed. Um, you know, we would have logs to log in the areas that were searched. We would do controlled searches. We'd search areas and we would mark them on a map showing that they had been searched already. So a lot of resources would come together. It looks like that they have that going now. Doesn't seem like that was happening right in the beginning. But uh, I, I don't know if it was the reasons of they weren't uh, really aware that he was uh, that it was suspicious or if it just a small town police department, or perhaps the possibility remains, uh, you know, they didn't want that type of uh, bad press, a uh, small town. Uh, everybody knows one another. I don't know what it is, but she seems to have gotten the ball rolling with the FBI. And that's very, very important in this case. I know sure pe- that- pe- people are asking in the chat, why is the FBI involved? One reason they may be involved is because, this is on the borderline of Utah and Nevada. There's a very good chance that this crossed state lines, which would immediately uh, bring the FBI in. Uh, the FBI doesn't uh, automatically get called in on a kidnapping, but that's a potential thing. This could have been ruled a, a potentially a kidnapping. Uh, it's a good thing that the FBI is involved because, as we said earlier on, they got unlimited funds. The feds got nothing but money. They have all the tools. They have the electronic eavesdropping. They have the the, the uh, cell phone um, tools that they can get, which all cost a great deal of money. And the FBI brings that to the, uh, to the case right away. Most of the time in cases of like this, where there's a missing person, <clears throat> excuse me, in a small uh, police department or a small town, if uh, request to uh, have assistance from the FBI, they would usually 
do that in a case like this. Again, uh, I said in the beginning that they should be enlisting the help of the state police, state police, as well as the FBI. Everybody joins together. You can't have enough resources when you have a case like this, that it's such a large, vast area. And then you have all of these different rumors and innuendo going around. Uh, it's unfortunate she's not here tonight because we asked her questions about the pickup truck. I had a couple of other questions. We never got to the, ask her about the uh, the rear of the pickup truck, the body of the pickup truck, because there were stories on the internet that he had been shot uh, doing some like a malicious security type thing, either accidentally or engaging people on land that uh, that were trespassing, and perhaps he was thrown into the back of the pickup truck. So we don't know exactly what happened. It sounds like she's got information from the FBI, as she said, that uh, she seems like the, the investigation is rolling in the right direction. So I think we're going to have a conclusion shortly. Uh, you know, we've said that in a lot of other cases. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but it seems like the the uh, the, the wheels of justice are spinning. And I think the investigation is really picking up steam at this point. She was also on um, a station last night. Uh, let me just uh, remove this for a second. Uh, she was on a station last night. It's, I'm not. I'm not finding the. Um, she was on a station last night, East Idaho News, and she was interviewed. So you can you understand she was, she was out there all night, and uh, that's one of the reasons she wouldn't uh, wasn't comfortable with coming on today. Let me see if we get the sound here. Grain truck in the shed, like he told his grandma he was gonna do, and took off walking to his camper and was out there with a broken leg or bit by a snake. You know, it's a five and a half mile stretch. So that's what we were thinking we were going to find was a hospital trip and, you know, a quick heart attack for everybody, but bring them home and doctor them up and good to go. Um, so about 90 minutes into the search is when they found Dylan's boots behind the dirt mound and they took Justin and I out there and we, we both instantly knew. Um, we just didn't know the extent of what it was going to turn into because we were following law enforcement and search and rescue leads. Like, their, you know, their way of doing things. If they weren't panicked, if they weren't making a big deal out of it, why should we? You know, we don't know. We've never been in this situation. Um, so we find the boots. Um, and how far were the boots from his camp trailer? About 300 yards. 300 yards. Well, that from not from the camp trailer, from his grain truck. Oh, from the, the grain, grain truck. truck, yes. Okay, so you've got the camp trailer, you've got his pickup truck, the red pickup, and then you've got the grain truck. Correct. And then... 300 yards from the grain truck behind a pile of dirt is the boots. Correct. And there's blood on the boots. Well, so they have now confirmed that. We both seen the dark spot. You saw a spot. We weren't sure if it was hydraulic we, oil yeah, or grease. Or... Like I said, we were following law enforcement's lead. If they're not panicked, we're not going to panic. Um, so, yeah, but they, have, but they haven't confirmed it's human. Okay, but there was, there was, yeah. and how much blood are we talking? Like if you had a bloody nose and a, a drop. drip. Okay. Drip. So they weren't soaked in blood. No. But there's a little bit of blood on there. You find his boots. And, and Justin, when they find his boots, what goes through your mind at that point? I just, the, the, this is real. And then they tried talking to us. Well, maybe he bought some new boots and threw them out. And these boots right here are the exact same kind of boots they were. And these are a lot worse shaped than those. So I knew something was. Not right. So they were newer boots. Well, yeah, a year old or so. Okay, so they find the boots, and then the truck is parked there. The grain truck. Is Dylan going to go on a walk 
yeah. without a straight. How is he going to get anywhere without? Well, the not truck? only that, but the boots were found in the opposite direction of if he would have been walking to his camper. Yeah. Were the boots near potential crops? No. I mean, seed. I no. mean, they were by an old junk hole where they'd burn yeah. trash and stuff, kind of. Okay. So you're worried. You're saying this is real. Something's not right here. And then what? So that search and rescue left that night. They were out until after dark. So we all went to the camper, to where Dylan's camper and pickup was. And, and you know, we're looking through his camper. We're looking for anything, you know. Can't get in the pickup. Can't find the keys. So Justin broke the back window out of it. And to try to find. To the, try to find any. Gun. Yeah. Anything. Anything. Guns. Um, and Box Elder, we did have a deputy out with us at that time and, and asked him about breaking out the back window and. It was basically, yeah, it's your pickup. You can do whatever you want to it. Um, and then nothing in the pickup, nothing in the camper, nothing. I mean, like I said, it was like everything was. You know, Phil, I just wanted to say that uh, allowing them to break the back window of the uh, pickup, I don't think it was a great call no. from law enforcement because you want that, um, the pickup truck, which is a huge piece of evidence, you want that pristine. You may have just destroyed some very important evidence through doing that. You took the words right out of my mouth, Billy. That should have been uh, held as a crime scene. They should have gotten in with either a Slim Jim or if they found the key. But yeah, breaking the window and then you're, you're disturbing a crime scene, obviously. It's left perfect and Dylan was just gone. No phone, no wallet. Correct. But he did make a call from that phone to grandma on the Saturday morning. Correct. And was anything unusual about the call? Just that it was raining and he had to get his grain truck in so he protected his seed. And they've been able to ping, from what I understand, that call came from the farm? From the area, yeah. From the area. Yeah. Do we know where he went after the call? That's that's where it goes blank. But we do know the day before he was in Nevada. We know for sure on, on the 26th, on Thursday the 26th, he was in Nevada. The 27th... Um, uh, we know for sure because of hearsay for, yeah exactly we we know for sure because of credit card transactions but on it's friday crazy. it's uh some say yes some say no the stories have changed um we do know with what they're doing now they'll dig more into dylan's phone and they're doing that so whether or not they've confirmed if he was there um but we do know the phone call to grandma came from the farm area so we know he was in that area so, so regardless of where he was friday he did make it back to the farm or was Correct. still on the farm saturday yes and was okay based yes. on the call seemed okay yes since we last talked the box other sheriffs has said this is now a criminal investigation correct what does that mean to you all uh it, it's it's terrible it's terrifying but it's also got us help we need. Yeah. Finally, we got the FBI's got involved. It feels like something's going to happen now. With Box Elder, it didn't feel like anything was happening. I don't know what they were doing, but yeah, it's because because it was considered a. So, folks, with big investigations like this, obviously, so the FBI is welcomed in. Uh, the the, uh, the local police probably don't experience a lot of um, investigations of this magnitude. They may not have the experience dealing with forensic evidence 
Uh, just the fact that they told him to break the window of the pickup truck was probably not, probably not a good call, you know. But now potentially the FBI is in the lead. They can all get on the same page. They can all get organized and get an investigative direction with this case. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like this uh, podcast, go on our YouTube, uh, subscribe, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And we have a Patreon if you want to subscribe to that to help us out. And we also have a YouTube channel. And you can see all the folks in the chat with the green font are members of our channel. Bill, interesting case. Absolutely, Billy. Um, you know, I just want to touch a little bit on the fact that uh, they allowed the, uh, the Dylan's dad to break into the pickup truck. Now, uh, again, I'm skeptical with missing person cases because a lot of times people, especially a person that's 19 years old, they go off and maybe they get, you know, they meet a girl or whatever, and then they just tie one on and, and they get lost. And so I'm a little skeptical with things like that. I get it. But once you go to the location, and you find those boots like basically hidden behind a pile of garbage. Uh, that's a red flag for me. There could be possibly blood on it. The family tells you that he never do- goes anywhere without those boots. Those are his one and only pair. And he couldn't have walked away from there. So that was the red flag for me. At this point, I would say you need to err on the side of caution and assume that there could be critical evidence inside of that pickup truck. Uh, it wouldn't have taken much effort to say, wait, don't break into the pickup truck. We're going to get a forensic team, whether they had to go to the state police, the FBI, whoever. Very, very important evidence might be collected within that pickup truck, even though it was washed. We know that evidence, uh, a lot of times blood evidence, whatever, uh, a lot of times uh, there's microscopic amounts of it that can be recovered even when a person tries to clean up a crime scene. So I think they should have had on the side of caution in that respect with what regard to the pickup truck. Now the boots, again, I don't think the boots were inventoried and treated as evidence either, even though there was a spot of possibly blood that also should have been uh, treated as a piece of evidence. Uh, The person who handled it could have left uh, touch DNA, possibly hair fibers, Uh, Maybe it's the blood of that person. So again, those two things I think were very critical in the investigation. Um, If they're calling it a criminal investigation at this point, I think we all believe that uh, early on. I mean, this is three weeks old. This kid hasn't been seen. So I think um, it's definitely foul play here. Uh, So I think to call it a criminal investigation is not a stretch at all. And with all of those things said, I think that Perhaps they don't deal with this on a regular basis. They didn't recognize it. And that's why those errors were made. But those were definitely uh, critical errors that were made. To partying. He wasn't into any of that stuff. So what's what's happened since we last talked? We we spoke. You guys were going to do a big search out there the weekend, weekend or two ago. No, no hints, no clues. No, no. We had... Elko came out and helped us organize that search, um, did the grid search. They assigned everybody areas. Um, There was a few suspicious things they went and looked at that didn't turn up into anything. And then it was that Sunday that um, I was told the FBI had reached out, and that was all the information I'd gotten was the FBI's reached out. And then by Wednesday, I think it was that Wednesday, we were in touch with an agent, um, and things finally started happening. So... The 15th is when Box Elder came out. It was criminal, and that was after the FBI got involved. But they, they'd lost 17 days at that point with the same evidence they had three days into it. 
So, you know, they they did take Dylan's campers. Finally, finally when the FBI came, when the, the FBI day the came FBI in. arrived, they took the campers. Yeah. What about his trucks? And I reached out to Bonneville County, and they reached into ISP, and they have the truck. The pickup. The pickup. The pick and then uh, the tractor he was driving, I don't know if they – I reached out to ISP and stuff to go – check the ECM on that to just get an idea of when that tractor was running. I don't, I haven't heard anything about that yet. It's in Rupert. Mm, that might give you, give you a clue there. Give an idea of when the tractor was actually running. You know, Phil, in my mind, look, forensic evidence is important in this case, but in my mind, this case will be solved through interview and interrogation. It's funny you, know, you said that, Billy. That's where I was going. You know, you got to get out there. When I ran ran homicide investigations, I would lasso everyone in the damn neighborhood and bring them in. And it, when if they didn't have anything pertinent, all right, get out of here. But I talked, and I, not just I, we, my team and the, whatever squad I was working at, we brought everyone into the damn precinct. And that's how we solved lots of cases. He said, she said, interview and interrogation. That's the key. Absolutely, Billy. And there are some people that have been named as uh, associates of Dylan's. I think you got to zero in on those people. Uh, if he hung out in that uh, saddle soap uh, bar location, I'd be in there. I'd be, uh, you know, turning the screws up a little bit on them. Uh, it, unless they were cooperative, they were cooperative. They tell me everything I want to know. There's no need to uh, bring any heat on them. But uh, again, uh, that's going to be the key to it. Good old fashioned uh, legwork, uh, detective work you know, going out there, knocking on doors, talking to people, getting his associates, uh, getting timelines down, stories. Uh, you lock people in. And then once they give you their uh, their story, their, their statement, you can go and try and uh, corroborate it. And that's when you're going to find, you know, you're going to punch holes in different stories. Some people that are going to have corroboratable stories, they will be eliminated about their whereabouts or what they knew. And you're going to go from there. That's basically, it's like a puzzle. You got to put the pieces together. It's a little tedious at times, but that's what we do. Uh, that's what you're paid to do. Uh, and I think that's probably what's being done in this case. No, absolutely. And uh, folks, so if any of you guys had tuned in late, um, Candace was supposed to come on the show tonight. She had um, contacted me a couple hours ago and said that she was just uh, exhausted uh, she had gone on uh, numerous radio shows yesterday, at least two TV shows, and she wasn't up to it tonight. So I uh, asked her if she would, uh, we were going to still come on. I asked her if she would come on uh, on another night, and she agreed uh, to do that. And, uh, you know, if she doesn't want to, I understand that too, because this is highly stressful. A 19-year-old son's missing. She's been keeping uh, keeping watch, you know, 16, 18 hours a day. And she doesn't stop. So you can understand the stress she's under and all the pressure she's under. And it's a highly emotional uh, situation here. Everyone has their breaking point, And it's uh, quite understandable that she's exhausted uh, physically, mentally. So I don't think there's any issue with that. Um, with regard to all the stuff that people are watching, uh, whether it be other content creators or just uh, rumor and innuendo on the internet, uh, we try to stick to facts on this show. Bill and I both have uh, committed to that, that we're not going to just uh, you know say things because someone else said it. We like to have uh, facts on our show, and this is really fact-based. And we thought by bringing her on that she would be able to bring some new facts to the uh, to the story. So that's what we were looking for. But 
possibly we'll have her on in the next couple of days. Absolutely. And folks, I'd just like to point out that in any major investigation, no matter how good you are, if you're the NYPD A-team, you're homicide, you're Brooklyn North, Brooklyn South, Manhattan North, Manhattan South, homicide, some of the best investigators, Bronx homicide, guys make mistakes in, in, in major investigations. Even the best people make mistakes. So it can happen. Uh, you know, everyone has 2020 hindsight and things become so clear once you know how something was done. But before you know how it was done, it's not so damn clear. So you got to vet information and you got to constantly check it and recheck it against sources that you know to be true. So it's, it's a difficult situation. And I know like a lot of you folks say, in the chat, did you like when we explain the investigative process? And I love to uh, explain it because I, I'm a teacher at heart. And um, I loved when um, the investigative process worked to a positive conclusion. You think about something like this, and I'm sure it's gone through your mind. Was it an accident? Was right. there some sort of accident? There's also the possibility of suicide. And I mean, it's it's out there. You look at all the options. There could be that. And then there's criminal right. homicide or something nefarious. So um, I'm, have, have all those situations gone through your mind? Everything. Everything. Except, except suicide. The suicide the has suicide not. just. I, I, Kidnapping. I, I, he's in a building somewhere. I keep getting texts and calls. He's in a building in Montana. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Montello. And, yeah. But Which is suicide, suicide right. and never crossed no. my mind. What? Not mm -hmm. one time. Never any sign of mental illness. Never. No. no. So that leaves the accident or the criminal, which now that they're saying it's criminal, um, I mean, what what do you think happened? I, somebody did something. I mean, and. We, we kind of got to keep some of our, what we think to ourselves. We got to keep some of this because we know a little bit more about some of the stuff than we can't release everything my my main goal is to just find out who did what and make sure they get what they got coming to them with the law if or whatever yeah i mean the main goal is to find dylan don't sure. get me wrong that's the first only priority and i when somebody tells me he's in the shed or something that I wish it was true, but I don't know if that's. Well, we haven't received any ransom or any. Or no ransom. People wanted no. to help. and Yeah, you know, so it, it wouldn't make sense that somebody's just holding them to hold them. Um, but I'm with Justin. I mean, I wish that was the case and we'd find him somewhere. And once again, trip to the hospital, you know, some counseling and whatever and bring him home. Well, the fact his wallet's gone and have, have his bank accounts been touched. Mm -mm. So that if someone did have his wallet, they could, you know, go use his car. Folks, you know, obviously the uh, family knows things that we don't know. Um, the investigators know things that we don't know. So we can just fill an eye, as I use the word rather loosely, content creators on YouTube, even though we're highly experienced investigators. We're not privy, and we say this millions of times, to the case folder or the inside information. So we just have to put out there what we know and what we know to be facts and not put out 
any spurless or things that are not true, uh, just to, you know, what it could have, should have, what, what if this, what if that? We don't know. So we don't put that out there. But you can see the family absolutely knows uh, information that's not out there. Absolutely, Billy. I uh, picked up on that too as well when the father said there's things that we know and we can't really talk about. He hesitated for a second. Then he said, and this I think is really telling, we just want whoever it was that did what they did to be found or caught or captured or get what they have to get. So it sounds like they know more than what they're saying. But there's one other thing I want to talk about. He mentioned, the reporter mentioned suicide. That is the four manners of death, which is natural, suicide, homicide, and accidental. Uh, I don't think it's a suicide. I don't think it's obviously a natural. If it was a suicide, why would his boots have been there? The body would have been close by to the boots, or I think the body would have been found there probably. You know, you know, Phil, I think I would have asked that question a little better than that reporter did. Yeah. yeah. I would have just said, is there any other possibility? And, you yeah, know, what's, what, what was his state of mind? That that would have been a fair question. Yeah. What's his state of mind? Did he Was he ever depressed or anything like that? But I, th that's not going to be the case here. It's not going to be... It could be an accidental. It could be a homicide. Uh, I doubt it's going to be a natural. Uh, I don't think suicide is anywhere in the equation. Again, it's possible. Like you said earlier, we don't have, uh, you know, the facts of the case folder, but uh, I think that that's highly unlikely at this point. So uh, again, you know, it was good that the reporter brought it up. I think he could have said it in a different way. You know, what, what was his mental state uh, at the time, you know, in the last few weeks or whatever it was. So, but uh, yeah, that's, that's not going to wind up being uh, any part of this case. Phil, talk about uh, recovering the phone and grabbing the um, LUDs and tolls and the cell site information off the phone. Uh, if they in fact have recovered it, I'm not sure if they actually have recovered the phone. Well, they talked about, I don't think the phone's recovered. However, they could still access the data from the phone because they'll know his uh, his telephone number. They'll be able to get the records from the company. But they talked about that he was in Vegas on a specific date. And the father said hearsay, but then he said his credit cards were used. So I don't think that's really hearsay. That's pretty strong evidence that he was there uh, unless the cards were obviously stolen before him. But I don't think that's the case. It sounds like he was in Vegas to use his cards. Now, cell phone technology, and from what I'm understanding, the particular carrier that he had, the cell phone worked great in that area. I think if you had uh, one or two different uh, carriers didn't work good. It was very spotty, but the carrier that he had supposedly worked very good. Now, cell phone technology is going to give you location, location, location. That's very, very important. He makes a call. It's going to pinpoint an almost exact location of where that call is being made from. Uh, you can take a picture with a cell phone. It'll give you location, specifically iPhones. I know that the technology is on iPhone and your, your most uh, major smartphones. So that's going to be all very, very important information. And you're going to have the text messages if he sent any text messages, any searches he did on his phone. Perhaps he, he, he was using his phone for navigational purposes. That'll be looked into. So the, the cell phone technology today uh, in an investigation, that cell phone is just a tremendous, tremendous valuable piece of information. Uh, and it, it'll lead us down the direction of his movements. And that's very important uh, up to the time when he goes off the grid. Wallace Pony, there was a podcast with Candace and a PI about Dylan locked in a shack, plus the whole militia thing. You know, uh, Wallace Pony, I'm glad you brought that up, but we won't bring that up because impossible to vet that information. And, you know, one of the things that a good investigator will never do is release that type of information out into the public. Because now it's no secret to anyone, including 
the potential suspects in this. That's right. So I question why someone would do that. And um, that's why I haven't mentioned that. Because again, we stick to facts. We stick to what we know. I'm not going to put it. This isn't the Jerry Springer show. But Bullis Pony, thank you so much for um, for bringing that up. Billy, I'm glad that uh, you brought up earlier about how uh, you highly, uh, you strongly suggested that, you know, the family work along with law enforcement. That's very, very important. Now, when we've done other cases, we won't go into areas that we think are sensitive to the investigation. Now, the mother coming on and and expressing, uh, you know, concern for her son that's missing, going to the media, going to outlets like us, a podcast, that's fine. And she specifically told us before she went on the air, there were certain things that she wouldn't discuss, which was exactly what we would want. We don't want to compromise any investigation. A lot of the content creators today, however, they're, uh, it's like the Wild West. They don't care about, uh, you know, they don't care about the investigation or, you know, uh, uh, making a, a criminal case bad that was once good because you released information or you might screw up an investigation where a person is going to know the information ahead of time before they're uh, spoken to or interviewed or interrogated. So that's very, very dangerous. Uh, we had said before, we'll say it again, we will not compromise anyone else's investigation. That's just not the right thing to do. However, there's a lot of uh, amateurs out there that do that type of stuff. And we strongly uh, suggest that you don't get involved in that type of stuff if you are a content creator. And again, working with law enforcement is the best way. You you form a marriage with them. They tell you not to disclose something to the media. You don't disclose it. There could be reasons that might not seem logical to you. But however, law enforcement, leave it to them. They're the experts. 100%. You know, folks, so many of the things that um, are known to law enforcement, they keep, of course, very close to the vest because if they do put it out there, it can compromise the investigation. And that's the last thing you want. Right now, we don't have Dylan. The goal is to get Dylan. That's right. To recover Dylan, whether he's alive or, 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 or deceased. The goal is to get him to find out what happened. And by releasing information prematurely or even some content creator putting stuff out there that doesn't belong out there, it can totally 100% compromise the investigation. And that is counterproductive to what we're trying to do. Absolutely. And and specifically, I'll, I'll go one step further. Interviewing people that are principals in an investigation is a no-no. I'm sorry. And I, uh, Bill has said it and I had said it. If it's our investigation and someone was to do something like that, we would caution the person not to do interviews, not to speak. And we would also speak to the person trying to do the interview, whether it be a news media outlet or whoever, and say, listen, back off. This is a very sensitive case. That person's a primary and we don't want them spoken to. And uh, unfortunately, there's people that will cross that line. We We know a little bit better because we were on the inside. We were investigators. And part of holding back information is part of investigation. You know, we want to keep the cards. We want to keep it, as they say, close to the vest. We want to hide our cards. We don't want to show our cards. And that's very, very important in uh, having a successful uh, conclusion to an investigation, which you know, we lead to an arrest and, and we lead to charges if there's criminality found. Now, in this case, we don't know what it's going to be, but uh, we need to get to the bottom of it. He needs to be found and we need to find out why he was missing for three weeks and the chips will fall. If it's criminal, then there'll be charges and, and we'll look for evidence further. And if it's not, if it's accidental, then that's how those chips will fall. 
Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. So like folks, that there, what's that? I said, you like that segue there, huh? Yeah, it was very good. I, I went quick and you, you knew what I was doing. Yes. Um, folks, we're going to stay on this case. However, we want to get Candace to come back on. She had said that she would come back on. I hope she uh, gets some rest. I hope she gets uh, mentally and uh, physically rejuvenated. And we'd love to have her come back on. But I don't want to... Um, have her come on if she's exhausted, <clears throat> if she's not at her best. And I understand this is a, uh, a horrendous situation. You know, folks, if you haven't noticed, there's been a lot of um, new information in the Uvalde case. And, of course, that's the active shooter in Uvalde, Texas. And one of the things is that um, truths are coming out now that we didn't know for a while. And one of the things is that the... Um, the chief on the scene, Pete Arredondo, uh, if you haven't been following it, he was just suspended with pay. And he's been taking a lot of heat, um, not just not just in the media, but, but also um, also by, by fellow police, by fellow police officers. And because of some of the things we found out, for example, that the door leading to the classroom was unlocked. It was never, ever locked. That is so heartbreaking that we found that out. No one ever tried that door. So the whole story about getting the key to that door was, was not true. It was totally not true. And the fact that the people waited for um, to get the keys. Um, Willis Pony, thank you. Agree 100% Sergeant Bill Detective Phil. I couldn't even listen to the whole phone call, only did because Candace was on the phone call. She's referring to the um, the PI that was on that phone call, the, the the phone PI, call yeah. played on that thing. Yeah. So getting back back to um, uh, Uvalde. Uvalde is is that we're finding out truths now that are just so heartbroken and heartbreaking to us. And to the, imagine the families that now know that the police were outside that door. And they could have gotten in that door very easily and ended this thing much quicker than it was ended. Of Uvalde, Texas's school district, the police chief, Pete Arredondo, has been placed on administrative leave as multiple state and federal agencies investigate the law enforcement response to last month's deadly school shooting. This news comes amid a brewing war between state and local officials, with the mayor of Uvalde now fighting back against claims that local police made disastrous and deadly errors in response to the massacre at Robb Elementary. Now, yesterday at the first public hearing, the state of Texas Director of Public Safety, Stephen McGraw, took aim directly at Chief Arredondo. There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure. Now, Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin apparently didn't take kindly to those comments. And last night at a Uvalde City Council meeting, he slapped back, claiming that the Texas DPS chief, who we just heard from, continues to, quote, 
lie, leak, mislead, or misstate information in order to make local officers look bad and downplay his agency's role in the response to the shooting. Colonel McGraw has an agenda, and it's not to present a full report on what happened and to give factual answers to the families of this community. 19 students and two teachers tragically died. They were Uvalde children and Uvalde teachers. What matters to Uvalde is that these brokenhearted families and this grieving community get a full investigation and accurate report of what happened that day. The petty infighting, the clickbait headlines, and the politically motivated scapegoating is not helping anyone. It is dividing a, a community and further frustrating grieving families. Well, that may be true, but he's now part of the petty infighting. Because remember, Director McCraw had blasted the police response to the shooting, laid the blame for the delayed response squarely on Arredondo, who was theoretically the incident commander on site. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. Tuesday's hearing came shortly after the release of new photos from the scene that show officers seemingly ready with guns drawn just outside two classrooms the shooter had taken over, waiting for clearance to breach the rooms. And during the hearing, McCraw shared the latest updates to their official minute-by-minute -minute timeline of the shooting, which is critical. Now, the timeline has also become the subject of debate, with various officials having to correct or completely retract information they'd included in their accounts of what happened during the rampage. Three investigations into the shooting are ongoing. Department of Justice, Texas House of Representatives Investigative Committee, and a third by a local district attorney. Now, when suspending Arredondo tonight, the school superintendent acknowledged he doesn't have the details of the investigations and that it's unclear when they'll get the results. But there is a lot we do know which led to this action tonight. Arredondo's account of what happened on May 24th is tough to reconcile with the information that's been released to the public. For instance, according to DPS's director, McGraw, officers, including Arredondo, made no attempt to open the doors to the classrooms, 111 and 112, which the shooter had taken over, believing the doors to be locked, which McGraw says was not the case. I don't believe, based on the information we have right now, that that door was ever secured. In fact, I have great reason to believe it wasn't secured. And we've gone back and checked in our interviews, and did anybody touch the door and try it? You know, how about, you know, do you need a key? Well, one of the things they teach you in active training, I'm sure that one of the experts can talk about it. How about trying the door and see if it's unlocked? Okay, As, you know, what we used to call a clue at that point. Why not? And, and of course, no one had. But during an interview with the Texas Tribune earlier this month, Arredondo claimed that he did try to open that door. And another group of officers tried to open the other door to 112, but then neither door would open. So believing the doors were locked, Ardondo says he called for keys and extrication tools to force the doors open. According to Ardondo, he then called for police dispatch to send the tools to help open the doors, except the security footage from the hallways reportedly does not appear to show any officers, including Ardondo, trying to open the doors. Now, beyond the questions about whether the classroom doors were locked and whether anyone tried to open them, there are other discrepancies in Ardondo's timeline of events. Ardondo told the Tribune that he believed he was one of the first officers on the scene and called police dispatch for tactical gear, snipers, and more. 
But according to the timeline presented yesterday, the first officers entered the school, two with rifles, at 11.35 a.m. after the shooting began, minutes later. That timeline shows that as many as 10 police officers were inside the building by 11.36. And Arandando's call for backup and supplies came in at 11.40. Arandando also told the Tribune that the extrication tools he requested supposedly would have helped them open the doors, never reached him in the hallway outside the classrooms. But the state law enforcement timeline shows that what's called a Halligan bar, it's like an ax used by firefighters, was brought into the school around 1235. But for some reason, authorities didn't use it. And instead, they waited for keys. There's also this. Arndando told the Tribune that he waited to order officers to enter the classroom because they were outgunned by the shooter. But according to the state's official timeline, officers with rifles arrived minutes after the shooting began. That timeline also shows that an officer with a ballistic shield first entered the school at 11.52 a.m., less than 20 minutes after the shooter first entered the building. Again, according to the State Department of Public Safety timeline, by 12.20, three more ballistic shields were available to officers inside the school. But officers didn't breach the classroom and kill the gunman until 12.50. Phil, these new facts are extremely, extremely disturbing. Uh, One of the things that uh, a lot of people now, of course, running for cover. And one of the things I said, and we had um, Patrick Ryder on a couple of weeks ago. I think it was actually June 2nd, so it was more than a couple of weeks ago. And we spoke about this very thing and how in the NYPD, the incident commander is the highest ranking patrol services boss on the scene. And he wisely reminded me, he said, you know, that's right, Sarge, but the highest ranking person on the scene may be a police officer. If he's the first person on the scene and surely three police officers arriving on that scene, they can make a decision without waiting for a chief or some high-ranking officer to go in themselves. And that decision wasn't made. So there's enough blame. I mean, that I, I look, they're going to assess blame here some way. And th- what we're learning, all this new information is quite disturbing. The Halligan tool that they talked about. Now, if the door is locked, in order to uh, get the door open with the Halligan tool, you have to pry it in between the door and the jam. You have to probably bang it with a hammer, and then you have to pry. I could understand that that's quite dangerous to be right in front of the door, that he could fire through the door. But to take a piece of rope and just throw it around the doorknob or, or a stick into a handle and just see if the door is functional, that it's not locked, that's one of the first things they should have did. And it, or just, you know, sneak up and just see if the door opens and, and you, you can take cover quickly uh, if he's firing at the door. But again, there was so many different mistakes and it's heartbreaking to see the picture that they showed on the screen in that report of, it looks like four or five officers with ballistic shields, with rifles. They're just outside the classroom and that's probably 45 minutes before he's actually killed. And we know that there were children still alive in that classroom, as well as possibly one of the teachers that called her husband. You know, another thing that they were talking about was the fact that Chief Arredondo didn't bring a radio on the scene. I mean, to me, that's amateur hour. You know, like, how do you go to a scene 
of a major incident and not bring a radio, not bring a device to communicate with Central, with the other police units. I just, I find that tough to accept. If he was alone and he didn't bring a radio, he's tremendously at fault for that. I talked about that on our last episode. If he's with someone that had a radio, okay, and he's going to stay with them, okay, I get it. And again, like we talked about, the communications was super, super important in this case because the communication from inside the classroom when you had a student calling 911 to nine, uh, through, the, through the dispatcher to the offices, and then if they came across someone that was injured, uh, we need a medic at, at, come to this side of the building, that side of the building. Communication is so, so important. And that radio never left my hand when I was in the projects or wherever I was. I always had my hand on a radio. And I said for more than one reason, not only communication, when you're working in a suit and tie, it's a weapon. It's a weapon if someone tries to attack you. So, again, him not carrying a radio, I can't explain that one. Yeah, no, I, I have a big problem with that, too. Let me play a little bit more of this. When the shields were there, and not one, two, but eventually four, when, when the first elements of SWAT got there, there was always a reason to wait. Then became the key. So there's always something that was delayed. And, 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 the, the, and the, the time I'll keep emphasizing, one hour, 14 minutes, and eight seconds. You know, it's not just a lifetime, it's many lifetimes. This boils down to accountability. While Uvalde Mayor McLaughlin talking about leaks and trying to claim that Director McGraw is skirting responsibility. It seems really tough to be defending Arredondo here. Director McGraw said in his testimony that this has set the whole law enforcement profession back a decade. But as I said last night, regardless of who's at fault, none of this should detract from the excellent police work happening in so many departments across the country. Joining me now is Elizabeth Fendel who has been all over the Uvalde story for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for coming on the show. Appreciate it. All right, so what does it tell you that tonight Chief Arandondo was placed on leave? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting timing, and uh, in particular, the statement that came out, which said uh, from Hal Harrell, the superintendent, said uh, that uh, he had said that he would wait until the investigation was complete before making personnel decisions. But he said, today I am still without details of the investigations uh, because of the lack of clarity that remains in the unknown timing. Folks, basically what they're saying is there's uh, new truths, new information coming out every day, and it's embarrassing. It's getting very embarrassing. Uno who? Thank you for the 499 super chat chat. Thank you so much for becoming part of our audience. All you guys in the chat, uh Lovebug53, thank you for the $2 super sticker. Ask Pisces, Jala, Gianette, Christine, Michelle, guys, we appreciate you, Frank Marsha. Uh, you can see the lawsuits that will come out of this. Yeah, it's actually you can't. It's insurmountable. And we had said the other night that we we almost guarantee that this school will be knocked down. It'll never, ever be used again as, as a school. And it's understandable. Uh, Sandy Hook, they knocked that school down. It's just it's just bad, horrible, horrible karma. And I don't think it uh, can ever be used again. It's just a horrendous situation. 
I agree with you, Billy. I uh, I would be all for knocking that school down. That was a scene of a horrible, horrible tragedy. Uh, those little children lost their lives, those two heroic teachers, other people injured and uh, just terrible. But uh, one of the questions that I didn't seem to get the answer to is how did they breach the classroom and eventually go in and kill him? Did they uh, use a key? Did they open the door? Did they throw a stun grenade in? I want to know those details because I feel like what they did at 12.50 p.m., they probably could have did at 11.37 or 11.30. Phil, unbelievable question. And, you know, something – and we, you're right. We don't have the answer to that. Yeah, that that's very, very important. Uh, obviously, no officers were injured. Did they uh, go in with the ballistic shields? They went in hot, obviously. Uh, did they distract him somehow? That's what I want to know. I think that that's going to be an important uh, part of this thing. And it just seemed like we were only getting dribs and dribs and little bits of information. We were getting a whole lot of misinformation in the beginning. And then the, the real facts came out, seemed to come out very, very slowly. And I'm still not certain that we have all of the pertinent facts, specifically how did the actual uh, uh, entry into that classroom the breach. How did that go down? I want details on that. I'd like to know that. And I think it would be important for future cases, God forbid, of, uh, of, you know, where police officers have to make entry. That's a good training tool to know exactly what they did because it obviously worked. They killed the shooter, obviously very late after he killed all those people, but, uh, they killed the shooter. They took him out. None of the officers were injured from my, my knowledge on the entry team. So I'd like to know about that. Okie dokie seven. We don't know what they were worried about. How many shooters were the children being used as human shields? Hindsight is so 2020. Okie dokie. I agree with you, but I think it was pretty clear that there was one shooter. There was one active shooter. And in the initial first three to five minutes, there were th at least three officers with rifles on the scene with uh, semi-auto and with ballistic shields. They should have went in and, uh, you know, yes. Can I say woulda, coulda, shoulda? Yeah, I'm saying it. That is the procedure to go after an active shooter, to confront and to close in on the active shooter and to get rid of the threat. You know, if you get to that classroom door and the shooting stops, uh, you try to make contact with the person inside. That would be the first thing that I would do. I would try to make contact. I would listen to hear if there were people injured and screaming. And if we know that he's in there and the shooting has stopped, uh, we're going in that classroom because he may have shot himself or we have to, you know, assume that he didn't shoot himself, that he's still in there and we have to breach the classroom to find him. That's the training protocol that is implemented throughout the country with regards to school shooting. You go towards the, the threat until you find and neutralize the threat. You don't stop. You don't try to negotiate. Again, outside the classroom, you don't know if the door's locked. You got to get in. The shooting stopped. Maybe you would try to make some kind of contact to see if there was possible negotiation. You listen for uh, people screaming, injured, uh, moaning, in pain, or whatever it is. And all of those things, you would you would have to act on that. But I know, Bill, if you were I, you and I were in that hallway, and we knew there were kids in there that were alive. We were going in. I know. I know. I was. I, I, I would speak for you too. I think you'd be of the same mindset because that's what. Uh, the training teaches us that's why we became police officers. And I just feel, uh, you know, listen, they were held back by Arredondo. I get it. They were following orders. But uh, I, I don't know. I'd have knots in my stomach knowing that he's behind that door with a gun and there's kids still alive in there and teachers. I, I, I just wouldn't be able to uh, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. 100 percent. Fuzzy Doxy. Thanks for the 999 soup chat. 
Bill, why didn't they at least go around outside to the window and shoot? You know, I don't know the answer to that. That could be a crossfire situation where the officers could wind up shooting each other. Uh, look, students we, as well inside the classroom. Yeah. But what we found out is that the door was unlocked, the door to get into that. So just so, so heartbreaking. The truths we're finding out. And we don't have all the truths yet. So more truth will come out as the days and weeks uh the weeks, you know, go go f the f investigation goes further. Willis Pony, yes, Fuzzy Doxy, same question. Well, I, I think I answered that they wouldn't want to get in a crossfire situation, and also they would have, well, they couldn't have been any more risk than they're already in. Nineteen kids were were killed. Yeah, but Billy, you know, we don't just take blind shots when when we're uh, confronting a gunman. You're not just going to shoot blindly like that. Uh, they may have enlisted a stun grenade. Uh, a flashbang uh, to distract them when they did make the entry. So they may have gone through that window. We don't know that. I think that's why we need to know the details of that part of it, how they were able to do the breach and the entry into that classroom and take out the shooter. Did they uh, use a, a stun grenade through the window? Did they open the door and throw one in? Was there, was there smoke bombs? You know, there's a lot of different things we can use to distract uh, a person when, when they're doing an entry. Bill, I want to get to the last story of the night, and that is the uh, new the uh, Supreme Court ruling on uh, open carry in New York State, and uh, I think it applies to at least seven other states. It's it's causing a great deal of um, uh, pushback, and uh, a lot of um, Democrats are very upset. Let me put it that way. Turning New York State's guidelines on concealed guns in public. In a 135-page ruling, the high court struck down the century-old law, claiming it violates constitutional rights. The court was split down ideological lines. The six conservative-leaning justices voting to overturn the law. The three liberal-leaning justices voting to uphold it. We have team coverage for you tonight. Carolyn Gussoff with reaction from supporters of the ruling. Marsha Kramer with reaction from local and state leaders. But we begin with Tony Aiello and how the court came to this ruling. Tony. Maurice, it comes down to this. In most states, to get a carry permit, you have to meet objective criteria. No criminal record, no mental or substance abuse issues. You generally qualify. But New York adds subjective criteria. Do you face special danger that justifies carrying a pistol? The court voted six to three to strike that down. After eight years of court battles, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association declared victory. The lawful and legal gun owner of New York State is no longer going to be persecuted by laws that uh, have nothing to do with the safety of the people and are, will do nothing to make the people safer. Oral arguments with the Supreme Court last November made it clear multiple justices were skeptical of New York's pistol permit laws, which required applicants to prove they faced special or unique danger and had proper cause to get a carry permit. Why isn't it good enough to say I live in a violent area and um, I want to be able to defend myself? How is that consistent with the core right to self-defense, which is protected by the Second Amendment? 43 states had less restrictive concealed carry laws than New York, a fact cited by Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote in the majority opinion, because New York issues public carry licenses only when an applicant demonstrates a special need for self-defense, we conclude that the state's licensing regime violates the Constitution.
Attorney Philip Hamilton says the court decided you shouldn't have to prove a special need to exercise a constitutional right. Having to show historically, have you had situations where people may have been trying to harm you? It's just going a bit too far, particularly when historically those regulations were not something in U.S. history that were applicable. You had the right to bear arms. And as far as the court interpreted as much today, they found that you know New York's regulatory structure just went well beyond the constitutional protections. This case made for some interesting bedfellows. Conservative icon, retired Judge Michael Ludig, supported New York's pistol permit restrictions as a historically rooted option for reducing the harms of gun violence in public, while the Progressive Legal Aid Society wanted the law struck down, saying it embodied arbitrary licensing standards that have inhibited lawful black and brown gun ownership in New York. Here on the East Coast, New Jersey, Maryland, and Massachusetts have gun permit laws similar to the ones struck down in New York. All those laws now vulnerable to legal challenges. Christine. All right, Tony, thank you. And in a statement, President Biden said that he is deeply disappointed by the Supreme Court ruling, saying, quote, it contradicts both common sense and the Constitution and should deeply trouble us all. He you know, Phil, I just want to make one comment on that. And, you know, some of the criteria in New York City is that to get a carry permit, you need to be a business owner and you need to show deposits of certain amount of cash. How is that a necessary element? Why or why is that a necessary element of being issued a carry permit? Part two, the same people that are objecting to this do nothing about gun crime in New York City and New York State. There's criminals shooting people every night in New York City, and, and the left does not want to prosecute these people. And I'm sorry I use the term left. Some people tell me they don't like that. I'll, I'll say it. Democrats, they don't want to prosecute these criminals that are being arrested for gun crime all the time, but yet they want to prevent law-abiding citizens from obtaining legal gun permits. It just is baffling to me. Listen, discretioning, uh, discretionary licensing leads to corruption because Howard Stern, what need does he have to have a firearm? And he's a, a legal gun owner in New York. And there's plenty of people running around with guns in New York City. Unfortunately, most of them are unlicensed and they're illegal guns and they're shooting up the streets on a daily basis. All you got to do is put on the six o'clock news and you'll see it. Um, I don't think that everyone should have a gun. Obviously, you need to be two things. You need to be legal. If you have a criminal background, criminal record, you're a convicted felon, you should not get a handgun permit. And you need to be safe. We need to have uh, safety instruction. You and I both know, Bill, we have the HR 218 bill that allows us to carry the gun wherever we want in the United States. However, you have to requalify once a year. You have to go to the range. Plus, we have in our history all the years of training uh, between the police academy as well as all the time that we're on the job. You requalify every year. So, again, if you have a standard where people are going to have to take a safety course and they meet the legal guidelines, What's the reason that you're going to deny them this gun permit? It's not constitutional. I agree with it. However, I don't want everyone to have a gun. And that's, you know, that's the Wild West we're talking about. You need to have standards. Uh, but the discretional licensing, it's not a good thing because it leads to corruption. 100%. And, you know, it seems like one side, they just want to write new laws that they won't have to use. So when something happens... They could point to this new law. We just passed this law that we don't use because they don't use the laws on the books. There's been a guy in New York City 
who's been arrested five times in the past year for gun possession, and he's out. So don't like don't even go there with this crap when you're unwilling and unable to prosecute real criminals for real gun crimes. It's the same cry we hear every time there's uh, a horrible, uh, you know, uh, school shooting or an active shooter. Governor Hochul came out with two things that I think are quite ridiculous. Micro-stamping, micro-encrypting shell casings of of, uh, ammunition, and then she outlawed body armor. Now, we talked about this on our last show. Why would you outlaw body armor if a person feels uh, that they're in a a violent situation or a threatening situation, whether they be a courier or whatever it is, you're going to outlaw the just the mere presence of, of owning a piece of body armor. That's ridiculous. And the micro stamping, listen, uh, it's only going to target legal gun ownership. People who are uh, committing crimes out in the streets, illegal guns, they don't care what's on the bullets. They're just using the guns for gang activity, holdups, whatever it is. So I think those were, and she, she, she you know, she flouted his, oh, look what I did. Look what I did. She was never elected. She's an unelected governor looking to get elected. And uh, I don't think that, uh, there's much what she's doing that's going to change anything with regard to mass shootings or, no. or God forbid, school shootings. Ask Pisces. I'm as left as it comes. I just want training and background checks. Not every person deserves to carry. Of course. There has to be another way. I ask Pisces. I agree with you. I'm for background checks. Of course. I don't think you just go into You shouldn't just go into a gun store and say, I'll take that one. No. And they don't do any checks. I mean, no. I think that's lunacy. But it's also lunacy to not prosecute criminals that use guns. That's more lunacy to me than, you know, them writing laws that the only reason they want to write new laws is so they can point to their constituency. Look what we did. And these bad people on the right are thwarting what we do, the laws we write, the laws that you refuse to use. So I know, well, look, we can have an hour, hours and hours of debate on this, but I thought that we needed to mention it since it was a new uh, Supreme Court ruling. And I know the powers that be in New York State, New York City, and even look right up to the president. They're wigging out right now. They're wigging, wigging out about the Second Amendment. Listen, I appreciate that comment from Ask Pisces. I respect that. I did an interview last night on the Power Hour, Arthur Idaller on 970 AM radio, and he's a, a powerful attorney. And he said, listen, I want you guys to have the guns, meaning law enforcement. He goes, I'm I, I'm not into having a gun. He go, and walk out of my studio. He goes, I know I'm going to walk past somebody. His, his studio is in Midtown Manhattan. I'm going to walk past somebody that's probably carrying a gun. But I'm okay with that. I just think that uh, law-abiding citizens do have the right to, to have a gun like that. And I think she brought up the f- perfect point. If you don't have a bad background, you're not a, a, a felon, a convicted felon, and you have safety training, then by all means, you should have the right to carry. Fuzzy doxy, exactly my point. Criminals don't follow the laws no matter how many uh, they make. 100%. But, you know, after a while, it insults your intelligence. When they do things like bail reform in New York City, they do something like the diaphragm law that takes away the arrest powers of police officers. They take away qualified immunity. They defund the police. And then they're going to talk about being tough on guns. They're not. They're not tough because they're anti-law enforcement. And, you know, I hate to break it to everyone here, but that's what that is. It's anti-law enforcement. And then to think you're going to just you're going to clean this stuff up by writing laws that are not used to prosecute people. So what is the actual point? All right. You know, some folks, I think we had a pretty damn good show tonight. We covered three different topics. 
Uh, if I can get Candace Cooley on tomorrow or in the very near future to follow up on this case uh, of her son, Dylan, I will do it uh, as quickly as possible. I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. You guys are our lifeblood, and we depend on you, and we count on you, and uh, I can call you our fans because I say that in a uh, in a in a loving way. I'm not going to call you subs. You're our fans, and I appreciate you guys. Phil? Last words. I just want to show this. There was a Democratic Assembly woman. It was on the front page of the Post yesterday. She lived in Harlem. She left Harlem because of crime, and she was the loudest voice to defund the police. So that's kind of hypocritical, I would say. Uh, with regard to uh, Dylan Rounds, let's hope for a safe return. Let's say a prayer for him. Um, the Uvalde thing, I think uh, everything we went over, it speaks for itself. Uh, it's just a horrible tragedy. And uh, hopefully we'll have uh, Candace back on uh, in the next couple of days. And uh, that's about it, Billy. I hope everybody has a great night and stay safe. Yeah, and we're, we're, all, we're all missing duty, Ron. <laughs> yeah, on, that's right. Who's on vacation right now. Uh, I, have to, I don't have to like dodge the time he goes on, which makes it easier for me. So do you if you're listening, have a great vacation. Folks, have a great night and stay safe. Stay safe, everyone. One episode.